Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for September 4th, 2019. One of the things I like to read about sometimes uh, is the drive toward the mythical uh, promised self-driving car, the one that will just handle everything for itself, doesn't even need a human sitting there doing anything, uh, it just drives itself. Uh, to be fair, we have cars nowadays that do a lot of things that they didn't used to do. We've got cars that'll tell you if you're about to go out of the lane, we've got cars that'll stop for you if you're about to run into something and you don't realize it for whatever reason. Uh, we've got cars that uh, can parallel park for you, uh, which, you know, can come in handy, I think. Uh, I have my doubts that we're ever going to have a fully self-driving car, but that's where everybody's trying to get. And that same concept, the concept of the self-driving car, which at its core is about increasing comfort and uh, uh, sort of leisure time, I guess, for uh, the human, uh, taking the human out of the equation and letting the machine do all the work. That concept is being advanced almost every day uh, in the field of weaponry and other military uh, military uh, functions. Presumably you've all heard of drones. Drones are a huge part of warfare nowadays, uh, used by both state and non-state actors to do reconnaissance, to carry out uh, airstrikes, to, you know, dive bomb uh, uh, enemy facilities. The Houthis have uh, drones that are basically reconnaissance drones that have been rigged up to explode uh, above a target, so uh, that's what they use. Uh, but they're all over the place now. I mean, the U.S. has them, China builds them and sells them everywhere. Uh, you've got non-state groups using them all over the place, ISIS, uh, the Houthis, as I said. Uh, you've got all kinds of countries uh, developing their own drone technology. We're now moving beyond that. I mean, the drone sort of uh, has taken the pilot out of the equation in some respects. Uh, instead of needing a pilot in potentially hostile airspace, you outsource that function or you you transfer that function to somebody who's sitting well away from the hostile airspace in a room somewhere with a screen and a controller and it's much safer for the pilot uh, the quote-unquote pilot i guess uh, we're moving even further in that direction toward technologies that don't require much, if any, human input at all. You don't even need the person sitting in the room with the controller on the screen. Uh, for example, there are systems already being deployed, an anti-missile or uh, you know, sort of defensive systems already being deployed on U.S. naval vessels uh, that don't require human input. I mean, obviously you have to program them to identify and, and target and take out a threat. But once you do that, they're supposed to function largely autonomously until something, you know, unless something goes wrong. Uh, the logic being that missile technology has advanced so far and missiles are uh, so fast and so stealthy and so uh, kind of hard to detect uh, that if you left the human decision-making process uh, as part of the, the, the system, it would react too slowly to any threat and the ship would be compromised. Uh, so we're building these, these systems, these defense systems, that take that function on entirely themselves, working at the speed of a computer to identify and, and uh, target threats and, and destroy them. 
we're even starting to implement or test out, I guess, some of that idea, the idea of an autonomous system uh, in offensive weapons, not just defensive weapons that identify threats, but offensive weapons that identify enemy fighters or identify uh, targets that should be struck without any human input uh, that make the decision to attack and then carry out the attack on their own. Uh, What I'm basically talking about is artificial intelligence or a form of it anyway. Uh, And if you've ever seen a Terminator movie, then you know this is a... (laughs) This is a real issue, right? I mean, this is there's a lot that could go wrong with something like this. Uh, we're even starting to talk about things, something that was talked about back during the Cold War uh, has sort of made a comeback, which is the discussion of a fully autonomous system for launching nuclear weapons in case of a nuclear war to uh, as the sort of final deterrent threat that even if an enemy were to somehow nuke all of our uh, human leaders and take out anybody who is capable of making a decision that this system this backup system that's fully automated would kick in and launch our weapons and destroy the enemy in return so it's sort of the ultimate doomsday device right and if you've seen dr strangelove then you know that that's a big problem uh or potentially could be a big problem so there are a lot of questions uh, that need to be asked about these technologies. Uh, there's a lot we don't know about what the military is up to, and there's a lot that I think uh, raises eyebrows on the when you get to read about the programs that people are up to, or that, uh, or when you read things written by the proponents of these systems and the ideas that they have uh, for how wonderful it would be if we had uh, computers that were capable of firing nuclear weapons on their own volition, or if we had robots on the battlefield that could target whatever they deem to be a threat and attack it. Uh, I'm joined today by Kelsey Atherton. Kelsey is a defense technology journalist Uh, who specializes in this stuff. He specializes in drones and uh, automated weapon systems, and he's written extensively about these things. Uh, He writes the Tomorrow Wars newsletter for C4ISRnet, uh, which is a a site that really covers this kind of stuff in depth. Uh, And he's been on the show before. Uh, He really knows what he's talking about here. And we're going to ask him about a series of articles that have come out over the past week week or so, uh, maybe two weeks, uh, discussing these issues. There's been, you know, talk of the the battlefield robots, talk of uh, the doomsday system for the nuclear, for a nuclear program, uh, and there's been some talk about drones as well that I'm going to get into uh, with Kelsey. And then I, I want to ask him uh, about the intersection of these advanced, very high-tech uh, defense technologies and the tech sector, the the larger kind of Silicon Valley uh, tech sector, because there's been some discussion of that in the news recently as well in terms of people working at maybe Google or elsewhere who are not necessarily interested in developing weapons for the military. And, uh, you know, there's some people who have had issues with that stance. Uh, and I think Kelsey's a, a good person to, to talk to about that. So uh, I'm going to get him on the phone and we'll start the interview in just a moment. Okay, I'm joined by defense technology journalist Kelsey Atherton uh, for his second time on the show. First time since the name changed, but second time on the show, technically. Uh, Kelsey, thanks for being here. My pleasure. 
So there have been just like a spate of uh, stories, some of them very troubling stories, about uh, military technology and the, the development of military technology over the past couple of weeks. And I, I, I very much wanted to get your uh, take on them. Um, and I thought we could start with the most terrifying and most absurd of them and kind of get smaller as we go through the interviews. So let's talk about uh, whether or not America really needs a dead hand, which is uh, uh, basically an uh, automated nuclear deterrent. Um, this was a, a piece that was in War, at War on the Rocks uh, earlier this month, actually, a little bit before, like not, not the past couple of weeks, but a little earlier than that, um, like mid-August. This came out, uh, and it's written by Adam Lothar and Curtis McGiffin, uh, who are, uh, I think Lothar works at the Louisiana Tech Research Institute, uh, and McGiffin is uh, the dean or assistant dean, I think, something like that, of the School of Strategic Force Studies at the Air Force Institute of Technology. Uh, and basically their argument here is uh, that because of advances in missile technology and stealth uh, that may make it impossible for a human being to act in time to uh, destroy the world a second time, basically after a first strike, uh, that the United States needs to develop a system uh, that would take that out of human hands, basically, and leave the response up to a machine. And I, I wanted to read one paragraph here because... I think it, it sums up <laughs> a lot of people's concerns about where this would lead. Uh, and it's, uh, it says, they say, admittedly, such a suggestion will generate comparisons to Dr. Strangelove's Doomsday Machine, War Games, War Operation, Plan Response, and the Terminator Skynet. But the prophetic imagery of these science fiction films is quickly becoming reality. A rational look at the NC3 modernization problem, NC3 is the Nuclear Command, Control, and Communications, uh, finds that it is compounded by technical threats that are likely to impact strategic forces. Time compression has placed America's senior leadership in a situation where the existing NC3 system may not act rapidly enough. Thus, it may be necessary to develop a system based on artificial intelligence with predetermined response decisions that detects decides and directs strategic forces with such speed that the attack time compression challenge does not place the United States in an impossible position. So I guess my question to you is, is this something that people are really considering and is it going to kill us all? So, yes and maybe. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, I think what's important to, to do is to, to step back and understand the weird world of deterrence, which treats the a set of a substance that sort of congealed in the Cold War um, and have carried over to the present as um, it treats as a substance as ironclad laws of human nature. Um, and I know by saying that phrase, I'm invoking. Um, Marty Pfeiffer's uh, wrath, and he's at Nuclear Anthro, he's phenomenal. If you are interested at all in the culture of the nuclear industry, he's a guy to be following and reading. I mean, he is deeply skeptical of anything being human nature, but 
deterrence theory think that. Um, and so we have to start from how do you get to a point where it makes sense to say, oh, missiles are so fast, we need to put a computer in charge of determining that they've been fired, calculating a response, and then launching the missile in response. Um, and to get to that point, you have to assume that the people nominally in charge of nuclear launches, um, and this is um, largely but not exclusively really talking about the United States and Russia, and then to a somewhat lesser degree, China. Um, there's more nuclear states out there, but none of them have. Uh, China has a larger arsenal than basically the rest of them combined, and the United States and Russia both have arsenals that make China's, um, that dwarf China's by multiple orders of magnitude. So to get to a point where you're like, I think we should design a system that interprets um, launches or whatever as like it, it sees nuclear attacks coming and will automatically fire back. Um, and this is not right, a new concept. Um, we know that Dr. Strangelove, right, they, they mentioned it, they cited, they take that on, uh, had a dead hand system as its plot. Um, only later was it revealed um, once we like got through the Soviet archives after after the, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, the breakup and all that, um, that Russia had actually been building something along those lines. Um, dead hand systems are terrifying. And the reason that Strangelove highlights very well is they only work if the people they're trying to deter know about them and trust absolutely that they will work. Um, it's essentially saying that if you want all your nukes to this, we will go ahead and seal the fate of the world because we have built a robot that will avenge us, that will, that will say, oh, rather than half the world being incinerated, um, we will incinerate all of it. Um, caveat that it's not actually half, it's just enough to make civilization collapse, and there's a whole lot of like radioactive poisoning and dying that comes about with like, a lost food chain and supply. Um, the apocalypse is not a, a bright flash and then nothing. It's a bright flash for a few, and then it's a miserable, miserable like 40 years for whoever's lost. Um, so, so that's the place we're in. Um, and that's a horrible, horrible fate. And the reason that deterrence theorists dive into the space is because they want, they have such faith that no one wants that outcome, that they want to build a system to lock it all down. But the only thing they can do is think of doing that is building a threat so scary no one attacks, um, which ignores uh, human error and mechanical error and coding error and bias and chance i mean like that what i come back to again and again is like we still haven't built a car that that won't run over pedestrians if you turn it loose on the street how are we going to build a system that can reliably with no and, and you can't i mean this is something that you can't there can't be the slightest chance of an error or it is literally the destruction of humankind how can we possibly think that we're able to build a system that can accurately identify a nuclear strike and respond in what, as you say, is basically just an act of vengeance. Like, we're all dead anyway, but we're going to make sure that you're dead too because, you know, we can't, we can't just let that slide. Right. I mean, and it's, you'll get to this weird place and new people are like, 
They'll say, we've never used nukes since World War II. It's like, we use nukes every day. That's what deterrence is. And it's a weird argument, but the dead hand is a step further. It's not even like, it removes human judgment at a point. Human judgment is obviously technology. It's a thing humans do. Humans build things. Humans make them. They encode their biases knowingly or unknowingly as they build them. There's human judgment that happens all the way through the process. But what Dead Hand would do would be, once it's set up, we no longer have to worry, say, that the president decides to fire missiles because he's mad, though he still could. Um, but we have to worry that he will, the machine will misread or its sensors will be programmed wrong and it will launch something um, in a mistake rather than human error at the moment of launch. Um, what's really telling, I think, about the War of the Rocks piece is it leaves out um, maybe the single greatest close call of the Cold War, um, which was, I believe, it, uh, 1983, I want to say, with Stanislav Petrov, was a Soviet officer. He was monitoring sensors um, to determine early warning sensors. These sensors were, had some new satellites, they were reading, um, they're, in, they're in orbit, they're looking down, they're looking down for signals, I think usually, I think it was light reflectivity specifically, that would indicate a missile silo launch. He sees that there's the sensors have picked up five missiles coming, and he waits. Um, he the protocol would be he saw a launch detected, should immediately forward it onto the command, um, and then they should retaliate, um, or they would make the decision to retaliate higher up in the process. Um, and why we know Stanislav Petrov at all is because he waited, because he saw, oh, the United States is launching five missiles? That's absurd. They have thousands. If they were going to do a sudden launch, they would launch thousands and not five. This is probably something else. Um, we... And it was, it was, it was the satellites that were the early warning satellites had picked up the sun's reflection on clouds and interpreted that as a nuclear launch. And because a Soviet officer was skeptical that the launch registered was too small to be an actual launch, the faulty sensors did not lead to the end of the world in the early 80s um, from a nuclear escalation cycle that happened then. Um, the authors, I'm sure, would point to, like, if they if they thought to mention this, um, which they wouldn't because it undermines their argument, is that he had time to do that. He had the space. There's why there's, they give, I think, somewhere between 30 and 15 minutes, um, or 15 and 30 minutes, depending on where the missile is coming for, sensors to pick it up, and then politicians to respond. And there's new weapons. There's hypersonic missiles, which aren't great. No one should have them, but that's what's happening. Um, that do reduce that window a little, but they don't reduce it a ton. Um, because really, in the broadest sense, we're dealing with like a half-hour window um, with a politician, an elected person, really. In the United States, it, it's the executive. Um, there's no system really in the world that we know of that puts this responsibility elsewhere. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure I might be wrong on a couple of countries, but for the United States, for Russia, it's the executive makes the call. And when the missile happens, they are they, they, they can choose whether or not to retaliate. Um, the UK is a fun system with like letters on submarines, um, but that's different. Um, anyway, so 
time. And what the, the turns people are really worried about is that there will not be enough time. Um, and then if there's not enough time, then there's no point to deterrence because you need to have the moment where the president says, yes, I think it's a good idea um, to retaliate. Um, and then you know As they will say, they don't actually believe that the retaliation is an important part of the process. It's really a very elaborate... It's not a bluffing game, but the, uh, what they want is a game where everyone bluffs successfully and nothing bad happens. And it's weird, and it's an insane thing to build the uh, world around and peace around and the uh, whole national security apparatus and state around um, countries like China, which they mentioned as having this weird moral, lacking America's moral compunction, which they don't back up, but that's what they say in the uh, War on the Rocks piece, has an explicit no-first-use policy um, with its 300 or so uh, warheads. That's very different than the United States was like, no, we need the strategic flexibility to say that we are willing to strike first, to keep them on their toes, to hopefully keep everything tampered down. Um, it's weird, and as time goes on, the probability of error from our existing system increases, and it's hard to imagine a new system coded by humans would be um, less fallible. <laughs> I mean, the other thing I come back to, aside from the the car, is the F-35. I mean, the F-35 has gone through so many software updates to fix things like, you know, pilots were suffocating and the, the, they couldn't see anything because the, the heads-up display was too crowded. And, you know, they've, they've had to go back, you know, again and again and patch things, which is bad enough in a, you know, $1 trillion or $1.5 trillion dollar uh, air, aircraft program, but at least, you know, you, you catch a bug in that software and you fix it, and okay, hopefully nobody got hurt, maybe, you know, one or two people did. In, in something like this, if you catch a bug in the doomsday system, that's it, we're all dead. Like, there's no chance to patch that afterwards. It just seems like, you know, we know that, that people can't produce human beings who are you know prone to error don't produce products like this that are perfectly you know per that operate perfectly right out of the bag and and you know it, it just the risk here when the the end result of a mistake is what it is uh, it's just it's just mind-blowing <laughs> this is something that people are really talking about I mean, the Bolton of the Atomic had a really good uh, response about, like, um, that looks at, like, where do we see algorithmic error? Um, because the less you put, the less human oversight you put in, the fewer choke points and checks, the worse it can be or the worse it can exacerbate. And if you're trusting a machine to, so let's, let's go back to write that, that stance on example. What if the machine itself um, not just produced the readings that said, it was an attack, but also maybe it doesn't give the full launch order, but rather than having Stanislav down there saying, I don't think this is right, it goes ahead and it forwards the, like, our sensor picked up this reading, we believe it's a five-missile attack, we think it's this time, here is the retaliation we've already calculated, um, would you like to press the button that changes it, um, that that responds accordingly, and then like it calculates all the response. That would still be a human in the loop system, um, which is a big thing we'll see um, in AI, but that means that there's a person who says, 
at some point, a human makes the decision whether or not to fire or not. Um, and then the machine does all the rest. Um, at the most extreme examples of it, it's, it would do the targeting, the weapon selection, the maneuvering into place of whatever assets or tools or other things it needs. Um, and then it would say, hey, should we actually do this thing that we're about to do? And the person maybe just clicks yes um, and does it. And so it even reduces the ability of a human to think through, even for a minute, even for a few minutes. Um, I know uh, former National Security Advisor Brzezinski has a bit about being woken up for a what turned out to be a nuclear false alarm. Um, and there was like a drill or something, and he takes a few minutes and decides not to wake up his wife because what would it matter um, <laughs> if it was? And then he gets ready, and it's then his job to like wake up the president and wake up a Carter and this, the Carter and do that. And so it's a weird process. The whole apparatus is weird and bad, and removing the control of humans over it puts way more faith, I think, in machines than like. Like, the example I like um, for, like, what is a machine where there's a ton of money being put into it that has to work um, millions of times a day, and that's like a self-checkout counter. Um, I've seen this example of, like, driving cars are not good because self-checkout counters aren't good. It's a similar, the, it's, a, it's got its laser sensors, it's got its weight sensors, it has to catalog and check against a whole bunch of things. It's full of errors all the time. It yells at you if you put your bag on wrong or whatever. And that's the same basic process that they're extrapolating to something that would be, you know, produced with less oversight, fewer interactions, um, and at much greater expense, and uh, also is linked to an apparatus to end the world. Yeah. (laughs) And I would, I mean, to add to what you said, not only does it, would a system like that reduce, even if you, right, if you had that human check at the very end, uh, reduce that person's ability or capacity to maybe think through the problem from from start to finish. I mean, if you're if you've got a system that basically informs the human, like, hey, uh, I've determined there's an attack coming. Like, I've calculated all this, and uh, this is what's happening. Like psychologically, that has an influence on the human, right? I mean, you're you're going to be inclined if you believe this system is working and it's a, it's capable. Uh, you're going to be inclined to just say, "You're gonna, okay, let's let's respond." I mean, that there's there's a whole range of things that I don't think anybody's thinking through, basically, or that uh, the people who are making decisions aren't thinking through, or maybe they are and they just don't care because it's it's going to be a big juicy contract and somebody's going to uh, be able to get. A big bite out of it. Even and and I'm not and part of part of uh, of my job and working and reporting in this industry is I have to at some point assume there's good faith somewhere in the design or the 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 asking for the thing that the execution will be shitty um, is largely more predictable and easier to argue around. But even if we're assuming good faith, the idea is that by building an AI to take away the nuclear launch control or to basically either to take it away and do it all automatically or interpret everything, right? Rather than just the, we have five missile launches, um, what should we do? It says we have an attack coming, um, right? Even that kind of semantic reduction um, would radically change how this this works. But the, the, the reason they're assuming that this would happen is because they think 
lesser degree, like even than that, like North Korea or someone else, would change how they plan their nuclear force and their nuclear response. And that's super unsupported. If 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 hypersonic missiles, um, which are essentially they launch like ballistic missiles, they fly like cruise missiles at many times the speed of sound. Um, they are not the missile defense can stop anything, but it super can't stop hypersonics. Um, they can maneuver. They're they're weirder. They're harder to track. Um, you could put nuclear warheads on them, or you could put conventional warheads on them and still hit certain buildings if they all work well. Which who knows? Um, but even if that reduces the time for the United States to think about it, the, we have a really good example of what would nuclear deterrence look like if the time the distance a missile had to travel was zero. Um, and that's because India and Pakistan both have nuclear arsenals um, pointed at each other, and uh, they border each other. There's no window of time. So they have to build their entire strategy around um, nuclear deterrence with the assumption of zero time. And they have not gone to dead hands systems as a way to mitigate that, which is super good because they occasionally have shooting wars. Um, and so it's a, weird, it's a weird thing to think that this is a thing America needs, but really the greatest way to ensure survivability um, before and after any potential nuclear launch is to reduce the arsenals before we get to that point. That's like what's lost when we're debating if we can build a new computer to handle super weapons and then super weapons to match other super weapons. It's really the only known way to reduce nuclear risk is arms reduction. <laughs> you can't uh, nuclear weapons. Right. reduction. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, it's it's just amazing. I mean, and, and you know, uh, well, there are other systems, it seems like, you know, that, that people have spent time and, and effort to develop, uh, like submarine-launched ballistic missiles, uh, that are supposed to fulfill this role, like they're supposed to be, you know, defended from or, or uh, safe from a, a first strike, so that they can respond to that. But it's 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 just nuts. It's it's. I think we've right. concluded that this is not a good idea, right? <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, this is the most extreme example. Um, if we want to use this as a little bridge, but this is the most extreme example of why. We should be very careful when we apply um, AI to lethal decisions. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so right, I, I, let's get into the maybe less completely terrifying but still alarming story, which was in the Atlantic uh, just yesterday. Uh, by Zachary Fryer Biggs from the Center for Public Integrity. Uh, the, the title is Coming Soon to a Battlefield, Robots That Can Kill. Um, and he writes here that um, military, the military is looking at ways to develop weapons that basically operate on their own. They're robot, robots, in, a, in essence. Uh, they're using AI to identify threats and uh, target them. And, and he writes that um, 
you know, well, I'll read this paragraph. Lethal, largely autonomous weaponry isn't entirely new. A handful of such systems have been deployed for decades, only in limited defensive roles, such as shooting down missiles hurtling towards ships. But with the development of AI-infused systems, the military is now on the verge of fielding machines capable of going on the offensive, picking out targets and taking lethal action without direct human input. He cites this uh, study that was done in Singapore, uh, where they asked a computer to to identify, uh, like they, they flashed it uh, a set of 1.2 million images. Uh, and it was supposed to identify all these images uh, in 90 seconds. So, you know, like far, obviously far beyond uh, the capacity of any human being. And it, it correctly identified them 58% of the time. So you imagine putting this in a robot or a system on a battlefield, an autonomous system on a battlefield that gets it right, identifies the, the right target 58% of the time. And I guess the other 42% is shooting civilians or shooting, you know, friendly fire or, or something. I don't know. It's shooting something else other than the enemy. Um, like, <laughs> I mean, you can see the direct line from drones to the idea that maybe you can just take the human out of it altogether. But I think the same issues or the same concerns apply here. We're not talking now about something that could end human civilization, but we're still talking about something that could do tremendous damage in a, in a, in the, on the battlefield or off the battlefield to the, to bystanders that, you know, we're relying on our ability to develop a, a computer system that, that, doesn't make mistakes. I mean, where's what was your take on this piece? I, I assume you I assume you read it. What was your take on on yeah, so, what's going um, on here? It's interesting. So I um, so there's a lot in here that's good. The depth I thought, um, in particular, the covers. Um, it's really interesting. I think um, he talks he talks about work. Um, he's a really interesting figure in this space. He uh, has served as a deputy secretary of defense um, across uh, both Obama and Trump administrations. He's been uh, around for a while um, doing thinking about what his fundamental thing is, what is the difference? Um, how has America's military succeeded um, or how has it been able to counter advantages of others? Um, and there was an era of the first offset strategies is we just had more nukes than everybody in the early part of the Cold War, and that changed how nations responded to us. And then and the Viet, from the Vietnam era to um, the Gulf War is the second offset where um, rather than having more bombs, we had more precision bombs, which meant we could um, use our bombs more efficiently in, like, open battles. And maybe that changed Soviet defense planners' calculations of a tank rush through the Volga Gap and Whatever. Um, so that's the second one. Like, what do we do now? What is the thing America is best at that can most disproportionately advantage the United States to the rest of the world? And it's broadly the third offset. There's a whole bunch of stuff in it. But essentially, it's what if we have really good computers and software that can do a lot of the maneuvering and not... He's very careful every time he talks about this. I've, I've interviewed him a few times uh, for various other stories, but he's very careful to not say full autonomy, and then he defines something that's really close. Um, he doesn't want, like, a tank that moves out, finds its own targets, and shoots ahead. But what we might have is we might have a tank, a few tanks that move together, 
in a battlefield towards a defined set of targets that's selected by a human, and then once they get to those targets, they check in with the human who says yes. And that check-in could range from, like, what we imagine, like, with a drone, how the drones are done, where it's someone in a remote bunker who can is detached and doesn't feel the danger of the scenario, necessarily being able to click buttons or say or take the time. Um, or it might be someone who has a, like, Android tablet attached to the sleeve of their uniform who is in that battle, sees the tank say, we're in position, and then clicks yes. Um, so there's a range of what the lethal autonomy might look like, but the real, the concern driving the development of it is that Americans will not be able to act fast enough in battle and that computers will act faster and therefore we should trust a lot of the stuff that takes, that requires being fast to do. We should trust computers um, to do that. And this is something um, that, that is through the Atlantic piece. I had something similar last year, um, our killer robots, the future of war, parsing the facts of autonomous weapons. Um, you can find that at, at war in the New York Times magazine. Um, but so it's very, it's interesting that our work is consistent on this and consistent on what the threat is and how close but not up to lethal autonomy we're getting. Um, and what's really interesting is when you talk to the, there's, this is a topic that like, like, like the nuclear industry has its own um, set of activists uh, very clearly opposed to making bad decisions with exploding world-ending things. There's um, the campaign to stop killer robots is the biggest, but there's a few others who are very actively working on how to how, how international law will constrain countries from building robot weapons that they cannot control. Um, and one of the things that they bring up a lot, which we hear very rarely from uh, like the military side or the planning side, or, is if you have a robot in battle, it can take more time. The, the robots are being pushed by the military because they can process some things very fast. But if there's any any moral or humanitarian component to laws of war they should lead to is that a robot, because it's not a person who faces imminent death, because it's not a sentient being, you can give it time. It can go for it. It can be shot at first before it has to figure out how to respond or something. Um, and it could give commanders more time on the battlefield. In theory, if you're willing to uh, stop it from automatically shooting first um, and trust that that's where you want to put the emphasis. Um, it's a weird debate, and we're going to see a whole lot more of it coming up. I guess, yeah, I mean, my, my question then, uh, given that we just had, you know, just a, a few weeks ago, uh, a scenario where the president of the United States almost ordered uh, airstrikes on another country because that country shot down a drone. Um, uh, is that really? I mean, can can we really trust that uh, the Pentagon or that that you know U.S. policymakers are going to be willing to let their killer robots be shot at, or are we approaching the the point where? Uh, somebody's going to really say uh, we need to go to war because they just attacked our robot. Like, n nothing that, that cost any lives or anything like that, but uh, they they attacked, uh, you know, Sparky, the, the autonomous tank, and now we have to destroy them. Right. 
Um, I mean, history history is is replete with uh with with military provocations leading to um, escalation. And what what's so remarkable about the Global Hawk um, incident is, and this is something I, I I very strongly adhere to drone as the catch all term for any flying vehicle without a person uh, physically onboarded. Um, and I think it's valuable to think of them that way because I think that may have been the difference between the United States being in a shooting war with Iran right now and not. Um, because the president did not feel that it was a big enough thing to warrant a response. And we saw, especially in like the, um, in the national security space, we saw people like, should we be calling it a drone? It's a $200 million plane. Um, and, well, that's... <laughs> okay, but it still doesn't have a human being inside. Like, hello. Right. And so, is it? Is it? Does it if you hit a certain dollar value, does it matter more? You're shooting down a quadcopter, um, <laughs> less of a provocation than shooting down a global hawk. Probably. Are they? Are either of them in the same space? Is there somewhere in between where, like, oh, well, we shot down a Cessna with a person on board? Um, is that? A level of war that's certainly much cheaper than um, than a global hawk and cheaper even than some of the quadcopters we've seen. Um, so it's a weird space to be in. Um, I think it's really um, important that if, if, to the extent that norms mean anything, um, a, establishing a norm that drones are we're seeing kind of uh, because there's been some back and forth of of other drone shootdowns um, a little bit is that drones are fair game to shoot at without requiring a response that ends with people's death. Um, which means countries might be riskier drones and it might spill into. Um, we might see a drone shootout lead to a uh, shooting war between people. Eventually, and maybe eventually it's like months, who knows. Um, but we're not there yet. I think policymakers so far have been reluctant to escalate over drones, so that's um, perhaps luck, perhaps language, perhaps indifference. It's one of those uh, counterfactuals where we don't know, right? Like if they had, um, right, like a, would a hypothetical uh, O'Malley administration have gone to war with Iran over the global hawk? Depending on his advisors, entirely possible. Um, depending on this president, it's entirely possible that it did not play out as calmly as it did. Um, and if drones are to be thought of differently, that has to be the thing. You have to think of a robot as a more expendable asset, even if it's super expensive or was super expensive when it was built a decade ago. But it's also not a question that's really being asked a whole lot about, like, what, how do we get from now, where we have a lot of robots that are being remotely controlled or put into place, to where we have ones which are more autonomous, um, which are doing the flying on their own. What if instead of a global hawk, we had a swarm of some quadcopters that flew um, across the Strait of Hormuz and then got shot down. Would that be a thing? What if we said it was the algorithm and it was a, it, they accidentally did it? Um, would we be willing to de-escalate over that? That's missing from how we talk about it in the big picture. Um, there's like a few places where people are thinking about it. One of the things you wrote about in the, the New York Times Magazine piece is the moral dimension of mm-hmm. autonomous, you know, killing machines. 
Um, and, and, you know, it seems to me, like, even if what people are talking about now is a, a system where uh, you have an autonomous or, you know, autonomous machines or, you know, kind of a fleet of autonomous machines on the battlefield that still kind of have to come back to the human for sort of final approval before they uh, do anything. You're going to get, I mean, as this technology develops, the the push to just remove the human from the equation entirely or minimize the human's role in the process is just going to get greater and greater. And so at some point, somebody needs to confront the question of whether it's okay to let a machine decide whether or not a human being needs to die. Um, you know, whether or not that's, you know, what's the, what's the implication of that? And you addressed it in, in the New York Times piece, which, which I'll post a link to so people can, can check it out. Um, and it's also become, I think, the, the subject of debate in the tech industry. I mean, there are, you know, Google has said it, they don't want to, uh, you know, produce weapons or, or technology for uh, the military that's going to cause uh, any injury or, or death. Um, we've got, you know, basically it's, it's you know, this is a, an emerging thing, I think, for, for tech companies that are trying to get out in front of this and say this isn't what we all went to school to do, basically. This is not something that interests us. And last week there was an editorial in The Times uh, by uh, a man named Lucas Kuntz, uh, a former Marine, or I guess maybe still a Marine, I don't know. Um, the, the, the title was Dear Tech Workers, U.S. Service Members Need Your Help. Uh, and the subhead is, You have the power to help your fellow Americans survive on the battlefield and carry out military missions without harming civilians. And it's basically, uh, uh, you know, intended to kind of shame these people. The, the employees who have, you know, from Google, there's like 4,600 of them who signed a petition, you know, telling them, telling the company we're not interested in doing defense work and, you know, or at least defense work in the, the lethal area. Um, and other kind of groups of tech workers that have said this is not something that we're interested in. And, you know, really kind of... Uh, it makes the argument that, hey, if you guys just gave us some, you know, artificial intelligence that could make decisions in a snap, uh, you could save people's lives and you're refusing to do that. What's wrong with you? Uh, and I know you had some some thoughts on that editorial and I thought, uh, you know, we could just uh, give you yeah. some space to talk about that. Sure. So, um, quick, quick plug moment. I used this um, as I, I had a response to this editorial as um, sort of the elite essay of my Tomorrow Wars newsletter. It's through C4 ISRnet. Um, but if you're interested in more of me um, talking about this tech and what I'm writing, uh, you can look up Tomorrow Wars and there should be an easy way to subscribe, hopefully. Um, but So I took some time to do that because I think what's really I've seen it a lot, and I've been seeing it um, for a couple of years, really. Is really ever since Project Google employee, uh, Google worker objections to Project Maven broke, there's been a weird sense in the Pentagon, like, well, what don't they know that one we're at war, and two that the people. 
fighting that war need the technology? And the petition is really clear um, about what it is. And so to first, Project Maven is the big one. Um, it is built on open source tools, but it's a targeting, it's an image processing algorithm. What it wants to do, what it's being asked to do is look through um, video footage, specifically drone video footage, and identify objects in them. And the Pentagon is like, we need to recording way more images with more video with drones than we could ever process by hand. An algorithm would help us to do that and find the right things. And that's probably true. It would help the Pentagon to find what the Pentagon is looking for. But Google is um, super skeptical. And the Google employees, the, the workers who built this technology and were being contracted to build this technology, or uh, some of them we were working on, some of them who were just at the same company, and felt that accepting that contract changed the image processing from like a thing that Google does for like its commercial business, which sure, whatever moral implications there, it's a certainly distinct one from the from what happens in war. Um, and they, um, I know Gizmodo has a copy of the petition up. Um, one of the lines from it is, um, and this is from the Google workers, is we cannot outsource the moral responsibility of our technologies to third parties, building this technology to assist the U.S. government in military surveillance and potentially lethal outcomes is not acceptable, end quote. So that's really clear, right? Like they don't, they are building a tool to facilitate killing in war is something that does not sit well with these workers. I mean, Microsoft built a uh, similar thing called the HoloLens. It's basically sort of like what you imagine, like an art, it's, um, it's a sort of like visor thing. It's like an up-armored Google Glass. Um, it is an augmented reality tool. It's got cameras, it does image processing, and then it can put an overlay on the real world. Um, and so if you've ever played a first-person shooter video game where you have like a heads-up display that tells you not just like what is there in like the colors of the game, but also like highlights objects or um, identifies other things or like puts more information, overlays information onto the environment. Um, that's kind of what it does. And uh, their petition is available on the verge. The Microsoft employees say, um, quote, while the country has previously licensed tech to the US military, it has never crossed the line into weapons development. With this contract, it does. The application of HoloLens uh, within the IVAS system is designed to help people kill. It will be deployed on the battlefield and works by turning warfare into a simulated video game, further distancing soldiers from the grim stakes of war and the reality of bloodshed. Intent to harm is not an acceptable use of our technology. Um, and IVAS is Integrated Visual Augmentation System. So, um, so this is clear, right? Like, they do not want to be building things that facilitate killing. Um, and the New York Times op-ed is very, frames it as they are withholding tools that mitigate harm. Um, and there's a real, a clear, clear gulf between perspective, between understanding, between what um, they're trying to do. And I think it's largely, like, it's um, part of it, um, which, which is acknowledged in the op-ed, is that they may disagree. Maybe it's an objection to the specific wars the United States is fighting. Um, and that, that could well be it. There could be wars maybe where we see Google feel something is an existential threat and Google employees are fully on board building. But we are, um, God, 
half months or 11 months into the forever war. Um, it, if there's something that would change it on a policy level, you would think we would have seen it, and that's understandable that the workers experience maybe some frustration they want to facilitate to a war that's gone on since probably many of them were children um, and has not yielded any meaningful result in security or safety. Um, at least, again, a perception, but um, one I can imagine is fairly sympathetic. Uh, so, so it's weird to think that, like, well, clearly they shouldn't object to this because you could just vote to end the war. I think there were a lot of people who thought that 2008 was a vote to end the war and 2012 was a vote to end the war. Um, not sure there were a ton of people who thought 2016 was a vote to end the war, but maybe there were some who were, maybe there were votes that were. Uh, but it's a weird thing to feel stymied that the war keeps going and they, well, they just need the technology for the thing that doesn't change. Um, and even to the specifics of how would the technology actually help on the battlefield, if the Marines patrolling in Fallujah had a visor that could see and say, um, maybe it could very clearly say, right, like, these are children, these are civilians. This is a face we've seen in our database. But that assumes a whole lot about the quality of the data going into the system. Um, and that's missing from most analysis of this, is if you feed the system bad data, you're only getting bad results, and battlefields, are super hard places to collect good data. Well, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, at the end of the day, you're still coming down to whatever a human being did to program this thing, right? And, and it's right. the human beings who are making the errors on the battlefield, who are seeing things that aren't there, who are seeing people that look like, well, maybe that's a, maybe those are militants when in fact they turn out to be a group of children. Uh, you know, they're they're making those mistakes on the battlefield. There's no reason, it seems to me, to believe that they'd be able to code a, a, a system uh, that isn't prone to making the same mistakes. You know what I mean? Right. We have the whole era of early, I guess not early midway. I don't know. It's hard to put timelines on this indefinite thing. There was a time when every drone strike in Afghanistan um, and Pakistan we get a report from the Pentagon that it killed about 30, um, 30 combatants. Um, and then there would be follow-ups with the, uh, the investigation, like the uh, Bureau of Investigative Journalism would do follow-ups and things, and we would find out, right, that it was, the numbers were wrong. But the Pentagon rounded up to 30, and it rounded combatants up to um, any male over 15, or who appeared over 15. Um, and so, like, what if we're programming, hard-coding that assumption into the targeting software. Right. Um, it doesn't matter how precisely a algorithm can distinguish, like, household objects or, like, uh, ammunition boxes if the ultimate use of the targeting algorithm is to um, absorb and process people, all people, as targets without, like, identifying I mean, even with identifying characteristics, right? Like, it's very hard to say, and it's the nature of counterinsurgency broadly that it's hard to distinguish between civilians and combatants, but it's a weird thing to want to outsource to a robot and then have an algorithm to blame errors on. Um, and I think that's a missing part of this, is that no one wants to be the coder who was responsible for the algorithm that did a war crime. I did want to 
re- read one part of this essay because it's uh, you already mentioned it. It's the 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 bit where he um, writes that well, he writes that uh, I think well hope really that when tech workers protest working with the military, it is because they are opposed to the wars we have engaged in rather than because they are opposed to reducing suffering and warfare. Drawing that distinction is hugely important. Employees at Google, Microsoft, and other large tech companies who believe American wars are unjust, imperialistic, or otherwise objectionable are in a strong position to affect decisions about when and where this country uses force. I would encourage engagement on that front rather than handicapping our common defense and increasing the dangers to those who provide it. And he goes on. Five of the biggest six companies in the world are United States tech companies. With that size comes the opportunity and ability to influence. The tech industry has a veritable army of lobbyists in Washington. Instead of pressuring their leadership to withdraw support from the American service member, tech workers could pressure them to add the just application of American power to their list of lobbying efforts that includes retaining extensive access to their fellow citizens. This is a bit of a a shot, but retaining extensive access to their fellow citizens' private data and tightening their monopoly grip on the dissemination of information. And I, you know, I, I, I don't know if... The, the person who wrote this essay actually believes that this is how politics works, but how can you have lived through the the forever war and think that this is in any way the way it works, that, that employees at Google, Microsoft, and other large tech companies actually have the, influ- the, the ability to influence the decisions that are made in terms of where we go to war and where we, you know, kind of uh, project military power. And how can you possibly believe that tech industry lobbyists in D.C. are going to do anything other than things that will further enrich the companies for which they work? It's sort of mind-boggling to me that, that this could be a, a legitimate worldview, and I, I, so much so that I, I suspect that he's writing it kind of cynically, is sort of like, this is what you should really be doing, even though I know it's not going to do any good, but let me see if I can convince you uh, to do that. It's it's just a, an astonishing couple of paragraphs. Yeah. Um, so he gives up the game in the next paragraph where he talks about like all the harms and errors that have come from how Google and Facebook, et cetera, algorithms <laughs> have true, you're right. the domestic information. And it's really weird to say we need your very skilled, very precise technology to survive on the battlefield instead of doing this thing full of error that caused unintentional harm at home. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the whole the paragraph's about all the misuse that's that's gone on and the errors that they've made in data collection and how, how harmful that's been. But, uh, by the way, you're the same people that I want building a system to help me more efficiently kill people in, in war zones. <laughs> I mean, it's also, I mean, unless, even, 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 taking a step and assuming, even assuming good faith, hard to see how this, how, even if Google had fully committed to Project Baby, even if Microsoft was uh, 100% on board, even if the, the workers were 100% on board with HoloLens and doubled the teams on it and regularly did like six months updates to make sure it was better, it's hard to see the, how that reduces harm. Um, because you have to, the assumption that the, that would reduce harm um, follows from a lot of other assumptions about what the war is doing, how the war is being conducted, how it is being planned, how the United States identifies targets um, this long into the war, how it, um, that those targets are at the time they are. And there's like, right, these are insurgencies. I don't want to say that there's no, there is no 
dying or other things happening. There are people who are causing harm, but there's no... But we're looking at, I mean, we're looking at mitigating it in a few situations, maybe through hopefully very precise applications of impossible to collect data, um, or very hard to collect data, and very hard to adapt data. And it's, it's unlikely, right, that if we're looking at, like, where has technology failed um, the military, you could look at, like, the switch. There's, you could, you could probably find a sore Vietnam veterans who are upset about the switch from the M14 rifle to the M16 rifle, because that was a technology that did less than was promised. Um, but it's very hard to see how a Google rollout of a project movement would actually meet the expectations placed upon it and lead to the reduction in harm. Um, I don't know that the goal is possible through the means being asked. There might be other technology. There's other things to talk about in that space um, and about the way that like uh, AI is a dual-use technology. You can develop a lot of it for the civilian world and adapt some of it back to the military. Um, and those are conversations to, to have for the military to have and could even have with Silicon Valley in good faith if it wanted to. Um, but it's not really, um, it's not present here and it's not yet the, the attack they're taking. So the last thing I wanted to, to ask you about, and you, you wrote something about this last week, is um, the issue of Chinese supply chains, basically. This is something that uh, the Pentagon seems increasingly concerned about. Um, you wrote a piece in, for uh, at fifthdomain.com. I'll put a link to it in the show description. Can Congress legis- legislate excuse me, a secure technology supply chain for the Pentagon? Uh, Laura Seligman wrote something at Foreign Policy uh, specifically about quadcopters, you know, small, basically reconnaissance drones, uh, a market that's dominated really by China, and the, the Pentagon has been uh, increasingly concerned about buying kind of Chinese products off the shelf, and, you know, the concern being, um, you know, are these things going to be collecting information? Like, you know, is uh, the Chinese government going to... Do something to compromise U.S. security, and and really, I think beyond that, there to the extent that there is this uh, concern about a possible great power war between the U.S. and China, uh, it is a little weird. I will allow that, like so much of the U.S. military supply chain is is dependent on China, you know, and not just uh, buying products that that are made in China, but uh, you know, supplying, you know, building things that require kind of rare earth minerals, which is a market that uh, China has pretty, uh, pretty sizable market share in. Um, talk about what these concerns are and, and um, how much of it is, you know, there's sort of the cynical part of me, like I can see where the, uh, the argument is that this is problematic, but I also, there's a cynical part of me that uh, wants to say, you know, this is the Pentagon basically trying to um, boost the profit margins of domestic defense contractors by creating a demand for something like domestically manufactured quadcopters uh, that otherwise would be done in China. But, you know, we're going to funnel basically uh, U.S., you know, taxpayer money to U.S. companies to build them instead because of this you know, national security concern. Yeah. So, um, so there's a lot. Um, 
Um, there, there's a few things happening. Um, um, and the journal will get to a little bit. The, so one of the things is that the, uh, this summer, the Department of Defense Inspector General released a report um, with there's many, many redactions in it about here are some commercial off-the-shelf technologies, or uh, COPS is the big military term, commercial off-the-shelf. Here's some tech they've been buying just like you would at a store, um, and it has some big vulnerabilities. Um, and there were three uh, big ones they named. There's uh, Lexmark, which makes printers, Lenovo, which makes laptops, and GoPro, which is a U.S. company but has uh, Chinese-made components. Um, and they're like, these things, if they're on your uh, network, they have a pathway in for remote access by um, by hackers or perhaps by um, who know the pathway through the, you put your printer on, you set the Wi-Fi, they can get into the printer through the network and then they can get into other things from the printer. Um, and so cybersecurity is, uh, is messy um, and there's a lot that is just like stuff isn't secure very well to begin with and maybe some of this, um, it's hard to say, I think, how much of this is malicious, but it was enough that they just the uh, inspector general was worried about it. And like maybe, maybe if you are using, if you are printing classified material, you do not want a printer that you're a little worried about. Um, and that stuff seems fairly within, right? Like we could probably expect the Pentagon to pay a little more, a little, or source a little differently for a printer um, that it feels is more cyber secure. It's um, Interesting that the focus is primarily on that they are made uh, by China, that we know China. This government has a massive cybersecurity military um, apparatus that does like industrial and um, commercial espionage sometimes. Um, so it's not an unfounded fear. Um, and there's something to it. The, it gets a little weirder um, in quadcopters where we see the primary example of the, the Model T, if you will, of the quadcopter world is the DJI Phantom series. They have others now. DJI is a China-based uh, company. They've got U.S. branches. They've been, um, if you've seen a quadcopter, they're usually like uh, white with like red racing stripes. That's, that's theirs. Um, and the Pentagon keeps buying them because they're really cheap and they do the job. Um, and there hasn't really been a a good cheap quadcopter really until then. And there was a brief moment between like 2013 and 2015 where it looked like there might be thriving quadcopter markets. And DJI would be the big guy, but there would be others. There's Parrot, which is uh, French. There's uh, Unique, which I think is also China, but I'm not 100% on that one. Um, there was 3VR, which is the weird quadcopter company founded by the former editor-in-chief of Wired that is now a software company. So there was a moment where there was like a thriving international market, um, and then most of them didn't work. Um, DJI kind of captured market share, and that's where we're at for right now. Um, I've got something coming out, the next print issue of C4ISRNet about the Army's quest for a quadcopter. And one of the interesting things that I talked to, I talked to DJI about years a little, little previous, that they never really, they did not intend to be a military supplier and do not design with that in mind, it sort of just happened because they were really good commercial and people kept, and the Pentagon kept buying them. Um, so the big news, and this is the news that um, I had the part of uh, the Laura Seligman's story 
foreign policy um, is there's a a like sort of the term it's a weird term it's like a new market uh, the trusted capital marketplace that's the phrase is the Pentagon's going to put together some money find some uh, trusted companies and then give the money to develop a thing it thinks it needs that it doesn't have that it can't buy domestic um, and their first big project is quadcopters um, and when asked about it the uh, person was uh, Ellen Lord who's uh, in charge of it um, was very specific that like we don't have a national champion quadcopter right now we should build one for so that the military has one and then maybe the commercial market goes from that. Um, and there are like a few dedicated military suppliers on Instant Eye is one um, that do make military quadcopters for the US military and do the whole like we're sourcing our parts to be compliant with like the Buy American Act and stuff like that. Um, but nothing is as cheap, right? Like the DJI quadcopters, you can get good ones for like a thousand, two thousand, you can get uh, cheaper ones for like four hundred dollars and that's not a price point that Pentagon buys flying machines at. Um, it's just sort of where we're at. It's a weird place where uh, it, like, if you, it takes government intervention to stand up an American quadcopter company ostensibly for national security and probably for national security and maybe other things. Um, but it's a weird shift and it's really like largely motivated I think by a fear of of China and strategic competition um, and we've seen right like there was the big Bloomberg story that broke I want to say in October 2018 um, about maybe there's this motherboard company that's China the supplier in China is putting tiny little microchips on that then let Chinese security access it um, and no one was able to prove it conclusively for or against that actually happening. Um, and the company like lost a ton of market value and then like had to move its factories entirely out of China um, to try and recover and gain market trust back. And it's a weird space. Um, not that there's no concern, right? The DOG Inspector General Report found areas of concern. Um, but it's a weird warping where, like, the, the international market for commercial technology is so interlinked that to build national technology, national champions, you have to isolate yourself from it in a way. It's it's a it's a crazy world. Out there, I guess uh, this is just there's there's so much to to consider in, in terms of the these technologies and uh, you know a lot of it is is very problematic uh, this is less so but um, you know it still feels like at a time when the military is crying poor with a 700 billion dollar budget annual budget like where's where's the money like maybe we could draw down i mean we're, we're maybe going to draw down in afghanistan maybe we could put some of that money into building your quadcopter industry but somehow i think what's going to happen is we're going to have to <laughs> budget another 50 billion dollars a year for the pentagon so that they can have this uh domestic quadcopter capacity because it's always just more 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 um and and you know a lot of this stuff just is is there 
an aspect of this that is driven by defense contractors who are just looking for the next score. Like the F-35 is, you know, kind of yesterday's news and we're trying to make, you know, get the next hit, the next big contract. Is that where some of this, uh, just all of this stuff, you know, the, the, the autonomous machines, the, the doomsday device, you know, all of this stuff, you know, it, it, does any of it come from that? I think, um, is one of the people who led the charge against the Pentagon buying uh, DJI drones, they uh, was, uh, it's Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, uh, the Democrat from Connecticut, who uh, put language in the NDAA, which like the, the big annual defense authorization bill, that you cannot um, buy drones from strategic competitors. Um, and in, you, there's a waiver process, you can get them verified, but you can't just like do that as a default. Um, and Connecticut has a weirdly large defense industry. Um, I cannot, I have not reported, I cannot say that there's any direct push there, I don't. Um, it's a threat someone could maybe pull. Um, but it might just be like a lot of it is inertia, right? Like we are, what does the United States plan to do with its military? And it's been in a holding pattern of this forever war for a long time. We haven't really had any uh, major strategic perspective or change since, um, like we've had, we've had the scale of the intensity. The, the intensity has gone up, the dread war is deadlier um, in the past couple of years than it was um, in the last years of Obama, though it's also less transparent, so it's hard to cover. But we haven't really had a big change since, like, the weird withdrawal from Iraq that, that was undone when ISIS happened. Um, and there's no vision of what are we doing, why are we building these things, what are we doing, other than holding on to a uh, increasingly expensive and untenable status quo. Um, And maybe some of that leads into contract, but I think a lot of it is that the, there's not just the big Pentagon budget, but there's a huge overseas contingency operations budget which funds the forever war and a lot of this development. Um, and I think as long as the coffers are flowing, there are people interested in finding ways to do it. And the day-to-day the -day of war, right, is full of little things that go wrong or could be done better. I'm sure, um, I mean, the Lucas couldn't, in that, New York Times had cited specific instances of things that could have, that were shitty, that were bad, that were uh, horrific, uh, that technology might have been able to help with or that could be done differently in some capacity. There's just no thinking about how to do it differently that we're seeing at um, high levels or even in like really a ton of expressed opposition statement. We're just in a holding pattern of the forever war is normal, funding for the forever is normal, we're going to develop throw whatever modern technology you have into the mix and see if it builds new things. But there's not even a, like, not that it was a good thinking, but in the past there was a thinking you build the right weapon and then it breaks a stalemate on a war. And now you build a better weapon and the war continues. <laughs> right, or it opens up new war-making vistas for everybody. Right. <laughs> uh, well... Uh, it's all fine, I'm sure. Uh, once we get the self-driving car and the tanks that, that shoot on their own, 
everything will be fine. We can people can kick back and relax and and just let the robots fight. Uh, and, and we didn't and, even get into like the existence of loitering munitions, which have been for a while and are fully autonomous weapons. <laughs> They're just trained to target radars. Um, that's a fun thing. Google loitering munition. Definitely sleep well at night. Nice. Alrighty then. <laughs> Everybody can do that, and uh, I'm sure that'll be very cheery. Um, <laughs> but for now, I think we will leave it here, um, and uh, we'll have you back to to talk more when the next time somebody decides to write an article about building a massive death machine that will destroy us all uh you're the first guy i think of to talk to so uh in those situations so uh we'll definitely have you back to do that (laughs) kelsey thank you very much for being on the show my pleasure I want to thank Kelsey Atherton once again for coming on the program and walking us through these stories and I think letting us know that it's okay to be nervous about some of this stuff. Uh, and he's right, if you want to get make yourself more nervous, uh, you should Google loitering munitions. These are weapons that are basically designed to hover around a target uh, until it appears uh, and then dive bomb it. They're usually used to target radar, so they hang around a place where we think there's a radar system and then when the radar are switched on they strike uh, but they could be the technology could be applied to any number of things targeted killings etc uh, so that's a cheery thought and i think we'll end there uh, with that as always thanks for listening and take care and i'll talk to you soon bye-bye